Our scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Good morning to you all. Good to be back with you. I'm glad you had a chance to be with Pastor Larry last week. Did a great job. Um, I'm glad to be in the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I find the Sermon on the Mount challenging, but I just feel like I just cannot mind the depths of the Sermon on the Mount enough, and I just... It's hit me as we've spent time in it, as we'll keep going through it the next couple months. So what we're doing is where we are going through this sermon, we're looking at what does life look like uh, as a disciple of Jesus. When you say yes to following Jesus, what happens? What's next? What does discipleship 101 look like and sound like? And specifically, we're in this part of the sermon where Jesus is trying to take us beyond these Uh, these legalistic external understandings of the law to show us a greater righteousness. Jesus doesn't just want disciples to be good rule followers. He wants to transform us from the inside out. He wants to transform our hearts, including how we approach marriage as disciples. In the passage that that Pat read today, uh, we see it here in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. It'll come up again in Matthew 19, when Jesus will do a longer teaching on marriage and divorce. And I'm going to kind of hop back and forth between these two because that, that section in Matthew 19, it gives more context. What is, why is Jesus giving this teaching uh, on divorce? So it helps us understand that. So in that passage in Matthew 19, some Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, so divorce back in Jesus' day is different than ours. You, uh, uh, primarily, it's the man who's allowed to divorce. He can initiate the divorce. Um, and the question at the time in Jesus' day was not whether you could get divorced. It was for what reason could you get divorced? And there were these two schools, these two rabbinic schools that, that had different ideas about what was valid grounds for divorce. There was one that said um, you know, really, except for uh, if a woman is unchaste, except for sexual immorality, you can't divorce her. Okay, this was instructions to the man. Uh, but then there was another school of thought that said, you know, basically, you can divorce your wife for any reason. And kind of the classic example that people will often cite is, uh, you know, if your wife burns her, your supper, that's good enough, right? That's valid enough reason uh, to merit a divorce. And so this is what the Pharisees want to talk to Jesus about. They want to talk about concessions. They they want to talk about technicalities. They want to talk about loopholes. The the Pharisees and a lot of people at the time of Jesus are confused about divorce. And they're confused about divorce because they're confused about marriage. We say that again. They're confused about divorce because they're confused about marriage. 
So when, we, when you and I, I think as a congregation, as individuals, as real people with hard situations, we sometimes come to this passage and say, is this, does this give us valid grounds for divorce? And this is an extremely valid, understandable question. We'll kind of touch on it at the end. Lots of thought has been put in this. Lots of debate in the church has been put in this. But here's the challenge. If we start our conversation there, I'm afraid we're going to approach it more like the Pharisees. See, if you and I come to this passage and we're trying to figure out what justifies grounds for divorce, we're going to completely miss Jesus' teaching. Think about it this way. Imagine, uh, imagine you decide you're going to learn to fly an airplane. Hey, you want to learn to fly an airplane? You sign up for flight school. You come in the first day, flight instructor is up in front, and you raise your hand and you say, how do I crash land a plane? I really want to learn how to crash land a plane. Can, can you teach me how to crash land a plane? This is a problem, okay? It's not a problem that, because you should never know how to crash land a plane. There's times where you have to crash land a plane. But the problem is if you start there, you're not going to understand what flying is. The Pharisees are coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want, I, want, I want to think about divorce. I want to think about what I'm allowed to do. And Jesus responds, you want to think about divorce, but I want to talk about marriage. You want to talk about crash landings. I want to talk about flying. And to understand what uh, Jesus, uh, his vision for marriage, he's going to take us in Matthew 19, way back to the beginning, way back to a garden called Eden. Where once upon a time, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus looks back to Genesis. He looks back to the beginning of this great story of the Bible, and that's where he's going to build his foundation for marriage. Jesus is saying, you want to talk about divorce? Okay, but you're confused about divorce because you're confused about marriage because Jesus is saying, you need to understand marriage is a one flesh union. Marriage between a man and a woman is a, is a joining together, is a cleaving together, is a merging together of two people. And marriage is this, according to the Bible, is this very sticky, uh, very sacred bond between two people. And the problem, of course, is... During Jesus' day, that was not being treated that way. Okay? Not, rather than this sacred bond, it was being treated more like kind of a disposable product. Right? So you buy something at the store, it's no longer useful for you, you, you toss it. And it's interesting to me that this passage falls right on the heels of Jesus' teaching on adultery and lust. And I think that's intentional. I think they're connected. Because remember, if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, and we talked about uh, lust. What do we say lust does? Lust objectifies a person. Lust takes another person and makes them into an object. Love, uh, lust you know, takes someone that's supposed to be loved and then treats them as something to be used to meet my needs. Right? At its heart, lust is, other, I'm sorry, lust is self-centered. It's not other-centered. Okay? And when lust's needs have been met, lust just tosses the person away. I think Jesus is saying the same thing can happen in a marriage. If, if you see your spouse as someone who's primarily there to meet your needs, as was common in Jesus' day, well, when they stop meeting your needs, toss them out. They burn the meal, get rid of her. Find another one. 
And Jesus is saying, that is not how marriage works. Jesus is saying, you know, when you do that, you remember this is to men who would have had the power to divorce. When you do that to your wife, you make her a victim of adultery. That's what Jesus says in 532. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, makes her the victim of adultery. What does that mean? I've always been confused by that. It's confusing to me because the man divorces his wife. Okay, remember, man's the one who can initiate the divorce. But she becomes the adulterer. Like, how does that work? That seems both confusing and unfair to me, to the woman. But here's what I think is happening. Jesus is going to assume that that woman is likely going to have to remarry, which would make sense because back then, uh, a woman was very dependent on the man for basic needs. And so if, uh, if, she, if the man divorces her, if he writes her that certificate of divorce, sends her away for economic reasons, probably for survival, she's going to have to seek another relationship. Okay, she's going to marry again. I think that's what Jesus is assuming, assuming. The man divorces the woman. She then has to pursue another relationship. And Jesus says that now becomes adultery. Why? Because even though the husband has done this, he's given her the certificate of divorce, it's not a clean break like that. Because in Jesus' eyes, the two are still joined together. Okay? The book, I'm sorry, the, the one flesh union has not, uh, has not been altered. Let's think about this one flesh. I mean, it's kind of mysterious. What does that mean when a couple marries and they become one flesh? It's, there's a lot of mystery to it. But think about it kind of like this, as one person put it. Uh, when you refer to someone as a one flesh, it's similar to referring to one's kin, one's family. So that means a husband and a wife becoming one flesh would be no less permanent relationship than one's biological family. So think about this for a second. Can you divorce your brother or your sister? You, can, you maybe can try. You can try to cut out someone from your life. You can try to cut out your sibling you can decide, I want nothing to do with my brother or my sister or my parents. But can you, really, can you really fully cut them out? Not really. There's always a bond there, right? You're always going to have a brother and sister. You're going to have this bond that you can never fully destroy. And Jesus is saying that's the kind of bond we're talking about. You think you can just give a certificate of divorce and it's done. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. You can't just do that because this is a one flesh union. Think about how radically different this is than our culture's uh, understanding of marriage. Often you'll hear, you know, maybe a celebrity couple uh, will, will say they're divorcing and you'll hear a, an announcement, something like this. We are thankful for our time together. We've grown apart and we wish each other nothing but the best. There are, there are worse ways to get divorced. So it's not the worst way. We're not attacking each other. I just think most of us realize this is not based in reality. That even when divorce is necessary, it never works that way. It's never a clean break. The image that came to my mind is think about you gardeners, and there's a lot of you out there. Think about in the springtime, uh, you've been growing your tomato plants, right? And if you're like me, you've got a little tray, uh, and you, you plant two seeds in one little cell, and then you should ideally thin it, right? But sometimes you forget to do that. And sometimes the two plants, they grow up side by side. Eight weeks later, when you're ready now to put that tomato in the ground, you pull out that root ball. And what does that root ball look like? It's just this mass of roots between these two plants that have grown together. 
It, it's impossible for you to tell which are the roots of one plant and which are the roots of the other plant. And you can separate them, kind of, but if you try to do that, what happens is you tear the roots, right? And you're never going to be able to fully break those two plants apart. That's the kind of bond that Jesus is talking about with marriage. Jesus is saying to these men, you, you hand her the certificate, she walks away, you think it's all just dissolved, but he's saying, think, imagine like two plants growing together. The Bible is concerned about divorce, not because it's just based in reality, but the Bible also sees marriage as a symbol. See, marriage, uh, the Bible tells us marriage is a, is a symbol that points to something beyond itself, that's bigger than itself, and that is to God's love and faithfulness to us. If you know Ephesians chapter 5, you, you, you might know this passage where Paul is talking all about marriage and, and what, um, how the man should serve the woman and the woman should serve the man, uh, and they should give themselves to each other. And then, like in all that, he quotes this passage from Genesis that we heard earlier. And, and Paul says, and the two will become one flesh. And Paul says, this is a profound mystery. And then all of a, Paul, a sudden, Paul says, I'm not talking about marriage. It's like, well, I thought you were talking about marriage. No, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's like, what? I thought you were talking about marriage. And Paul is kind of like, I was. And I'm not, because I'm also talking about Christ and the church. See, this marriage between two people, between a man and a woman, is a signpost. It's pointing to something beyond itself. It's pointing to Jesus' love for his people. See, marriage is, a, is it not just this convenient social uh, construct that, that helps you save money on your rent, and now you can go to Sam's Club and buy in bulk because you, you can economize and you have two people and more people and... Um, no, 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 no. That's not what marriage is in the Bible. Marriage is, is this symbol of, of God's covenantal faithfulness and love towards his people. And I think that means as, as the people of God, we need to commit and recommit ourselves to seeing marriage as God does and Jesus does, as a sacred and permanent union blessed and established by God. It's a, it gives us a name. It's an imperfect image. But it gives us a picture of God's love for us. Um, let me give you an example of how I see this in our congregation. We have, over my five years here, I've seen many examples of husbands who have sacrificially cared for their wives um, and wives who have sacrificially cared for their husbands, often in times of sickness, in times of need, uh, even when they're dying. You, you, you all, most of you are older than I am, you've seen examples of this. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a beautiful thing to see uh, one person who's been uh, faithfully committed to another their whole life, and at the end of the life, they care for them right to the end? I don't think anybody looks at that and says, man, that's not beautiful, because it is. It's beautiful. It's self-sacrificial. And what's happening, you see, you think you're just caring for your spouse, but here's what you're actually doing. To the rest of your fellowship, you're giving this little snapshot, this little image of what God's faithfulness to us looks like. You're showing us in this little example of marriage and your own love for your spouse, God's incredible love for us, Jesus' incredible faithfulness to us. See, the Pharisees, they want to talk about divorce, but Jesus wants to talk about marriage, the beauty, the sacredness, the permanence of marriage. 
I think it's fair to say Jesus has a very high view of marriage. I think it's fair to say that Jesus thinks marriage is a really big deal. Here's what's so interesting to me, though. On the one hand, Jesus thinks marriage is a huge deal. On the other hand, he completely lowers the bar compared to our culture. What do I mean? Think about the expectations. You all maybe a little bit less so, less so in past generations, but think about the expectations we have for our spouses these days. The person I marry should be my best friend, right? They should satisfy my need for companionship. Uh, They should have uh, engaging and stimulating conversations with me, and they should share my hobbies. We should be able to have fun together. They should meet my needs for romance and sexual satisfaction. They should help me understand myself better so I can self-actualize, so I can uh, be my best self and live out my calling. Not not all bad things, many of them good. That, That is some massive expectations to put on one person, is it not? I want you to be everything for me. That's essentially kind of how we, at least today, look at marriage. I need you to meet all my needs and all my desires. And that's a problem because the Bible calls that idolatry. If you look to your spouse to meet all your needs and longings, you're you're looking to someone that can't do it because only God can do that. Only God can fully satisfy our needs and our longings and our desires. And think about this. Where are we moving as disciples towards? You heard Pastor Larry preach last week. What does marriage look like in the age to come? How's it look? Is it there? Doesn't seem like it, does it? Just a few weeks ago, I celebrated 15 years of marriage with Christiana, and I got a gift. It was a plate. It was not a crystal plate. You're supposed to get crystal uh, as a traditional gift for 15th anniversary. Here's what I got instead. I got this plate with these two skeletons on it, and they're getting married, and it says, till death do us part. (laughs) It was very my wife. And see, here's the backstory to this plate. Once in a while, uh, she'll say something to me that will imply that we're going to be married forever. And just to be clear, if, if I've got to be married to someone forever, I want to be married to Christiana forever, okay? But I tell her, like, that's not the deal, right? It's till death do us part. It's, it's not very romantic of me. But those were my vows, till death do us part. And Jesus says in this passage you looked at with Pastor Larry last week, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but in the age to come, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. I don't know how that sounds to you. Don't say anything to your spouse. Maybe it sounds great. Maybe it's kind of sad. Isn't that interesting, though, we're moving towards an age with no marriage? This thing that that we as a church have held up as the be-all, end-all in so many ways as an idol ceases to exist in the age to come. So after Jesus in Matthew 19 gives this really serious picture of marriage uh, and of breaking the marriage covenant, disciples come to Jesus and they're like, if that's what marriage is, maybe we shouldn't get married. This sounds intense. What does Jesus say? Like, no, no, I don't want to scare you off. Get married, it's the best. No, uh, Jesus says, yeah, If you can accept that word not to get married, that's probably best. Totally contrary to what I've usually heard in the church. 
I thought it was the opposite. But see, it's not just Jesus who says that. The Apostle Paul will say something very similar in his writings. And yet we kind of ignore that, don't we? I spent the last weekend at, uh, at a retreat with Father John Deere, who's this Catholic uh, peace activist, who's really, really incredible life and witness. And he's got 35 books about peace and nonviolence, uh, has spoken about peace all over the world. He's organized demonstrations against war and injustice and poverty and nuclear weapons and environmental destruction. Has been nominated by the, for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize by Desmond Tutu. And he's been arrested over 80 times. So he shared with us about his experience um, spending nine months in prison after he had uh, gone into a U.S. Air Force base and symbolically taken a hammer against an F-15 nuclear-capable fighter bomber as a symbolic protest against nuclear weapons. Incredibly inspiring, incredibly challenging to listen to this man talk about the risk that he's taken uh, for a witness to peace in our world. And I was thinking he's talking, I was like, man, that would be hard with four kids. I don't know what my wife would think if I had to spend nine months in prison. And here's what I'm getting at. I just have come to recognize as I've gotten older and in ministry that there are so many beautiful things about marriage, but Jesus and Paul were right. There's some, there's some things as a single person that you can do for the sake of God's kingdom that become really hard for married people, maybe impossible. And I'm not just talking about doing, doing jail time, although we probably should be taking more risks for our peace activism. I'm talking about life in our local congregations. Like, I hate that I even have to say this, but single, but being single does not make you a second-class member of a congregation. Unfortunately, we've communicated that, haven't we? We've communicated that there's kind of this tears, that being married is kind of the ideal, and then um, being single is second, which is completely opposite of the New Testament. <laughs> Here's my point. I want to affirm the sacredness of marriage, just like Jesus, but I want to affirm the sacredness of singleness, just like the Bible does. Because guess what? Jesus not only has a high view of marriage, Jesus has a high view of singleness. And, and I think we as Anabaptists, as Protestants, have struggled to understand that. It's interesting to me that we who are married give a vision to others in the congregation of Christ's love and Christ's faithfulness. But guess what? Our single brothers and sisters also give us a vision. You know what their vision is? Of where we're going. Because we're not going to marriage. We're going to singleness. I'm not exactly singleness. We're going to something, an age without marriage. See, here's, here's what's, what's hopeful and beautiful about that. Marriage at its very best, the companionship, the pleasure, the love, the connection, it's just a glimpse of what we're going to get to experience when we're in the presence of God. That those very best moments of marriage, those very best moments of, of connection, of pleasure, it's just the tiniest glimpse of what it's going to be like when we're in the presence of God. Is that not hopeful? That is so exciting to me. Because guess what? Our imaginations about the life to come are pretty small. We just have to kind of grope around and try to imagine what life in heaven will be like. But we know we get these little glimpses, it's going to be that much better. So Jesus both raises the bar when it comes to marriage, and he also lowers it. He says, this thing, you can't just dissolve this thing and think there's not consequences, but at the same time, Jesus and Paul say there's a holy, 
There's a holy calling to being single. And it reminds us that only God can satisfy our deepest hungers and longings. All right, no, I know I've spent almost all the sermon on marriage and not much about divorce, but I just want to say it again. The reason why I think we're so confused about divorce in the church is because we're so confused about marriage and also singleness. Okay, it's not until we get a, a better understanding of Jesus' vision for marriage that we're going to be able to then have healthier marriages in our congregation. Uh, John Stott, he's a former uh, English pastor, well-known writer, speaker, uh, who's since passed away. But he, he, uh, he said whenever someone in his church would come to him and talked about divorce, he would refuse to do so. And he said he had this rule that he would never speak to someone about divorce until he had first spoken with them about two other subjects, marriage and reconciliation. Because he said it was only when a person understood and accepted God's view of marriage and God's call to reconciliation that they had the context to then talk about divorce. So that's always where we're going to start. We're going to start with marriage. We're going to start with Jesus and God's vision for marriage. We're going to talk about reconciliation. And unfortunately, we, we do have to talk about divorce. And Jesus talked about divorce because uh, it was necessary then. Let me just name a couple things that are probably pretty obvious. This is one of those subjects that just touches people at an incredibly deep emotional level, right? especially those who have experienced it themselves. Uh, d- divorce is something that encompasses so, so much pain, uh, so much heartache. Um, we, as, as believers, as a church, need to recognize that and be sensitive to that. Uh, in this passage on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives what some people call an exemption clause. So that these are the words, ex- except for sexual morality. So he's basically saying you cannot get the divorce, and he's giving this exemption clause, except for sexual immorality as grounds for divorce. And in the, in the Greek here, the word is porneia, which... Um, there's some discussion of what exactly it means here, but it refers to sexual behavior that runs the ruins of marital covenant, including adultery. So adultery is a violation of this one flesh union that we talked about, the sacred union between a husband and wife. Vi- uh, adultery breaks that sacred union, and it's one of two reasons in the New Testament that are given for valid grounds for divorce. The other one is in 1 Corinthians where uh, Paul talks about an unbelieving spouse abandoning the marriage. So those are the two uh, grounds that are given in the New Testament. I think we need to recognize it's not divine instruction here, but divine concessions to human weakness and hard hearts. This was not God's intention. Now that stirs up lots and lots of questions. You know, are there other valid grounds for divorce besides sexual immorality or desertion? Are these the only two? You know, oftentimes in the conversation, understandably, the first place people go is, is domestic violence, okay? Is that a valid reason? And I just, we just need to be totally clear in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, totally clear. The Sermon on the Mount should never be used to protect aggressive males or to justify abuse of one's wife. Like, never. Like, <laughs> it's hard to imagine what could be more contrary to Jesus' teaching Jesus teaching on violence, teaches teaching on love, then abuse. It's completely contrary to Jesus and his teachings. And remember, this is teaching is to protect vulnerable women. That's a little bit hard to, for us to see in our culture, but this teaching is designed to protect vulnerable women. So I just want to say, like, to somehow use uh, the New Testament to uh, somehow protect males uh, who are abusing their, their wives, that's usually, that's usually that the way that, that works, is an egregious misuse of Jesus' words. Okay, so I just want to say that. Um, 
But this, this teaching also raises questions about remarriage after divorce, and there's various views on that. Lots of questions, lots of views. Okay, I'm not going to go into all of it. Here's a few thoughts, though. I think we need to recognize there's a difference between a destructive marriage and a disappointing or difficult marriage. Okay, we just need to kind of name and lament that we as disciples, that we as a church, have been much too quick to move to divorce that for reasons that are not biblical. And we need to do more as a church to remind each other to hold up what Jesus' vision for marriage is and what is it we're committed to. We need to, if you've got kids, right, we need to start teaching our kids what it means to make these marital vows, what God's intention for marriage is. What are you saying when you make these vows to your spouse? Now, will they fully understand? Did I know what I was getting into 15 years ago? No, I had no idea. But we need to start holding up this vision for marriage for our young people. We as a church need to support those who are entangled in marital problems and potential divorce and those who have experienced divorce, right? We can't just put out this big, big vision for marriage and not, as a church, give attention and give support and give love to those who are struggling in their marriage and who have experienced divorce. Uh, remember, I said this uh, last, the first week we dived into the Sermon on the Mount. Our tendency is always to see this as very individualistic. What is Jesus saying to my marriage, okay? We gotta remember, Jesus is talking to a community. He assumes that these disciples are in this together, okay? It's a fellowship of believers. And too often, we've seen our marriages as separate from a fellowship. We don't think we're accountable to anybody else except maybe our spouse, and sometimes not even that. We, as disciples, are accountable to our Lord, and, and this is hard for us, we're accountable to each other. We need that. We, we are way off that. We're not even close to that. We need to start thinking about ourselves as not just accountable to our spouse, as not just about as accountable to our Lord, but it's accountable to our entire fellowship. Okay? Which means, this is the implication of that, Questions around marriage and divorce and remarriage are complicated. We need a community. We need trusted and wise and discerning Christian leaders and churches to walk with those that are in the midst of this, okay? We need people who are going to walk with them because these are complicated questions. Let me just end with just a couple more thoughts here. If you are in a marriage right now and you're struggling, I want to encourage you to seek out counsel and support and help, okay? Please do not try to do this alone. If you're married, I want to encourage you to think about and reflect on Jesus' sacrificial and other-centered vision of marriage. Let's just think about one way. We as Mennonites advocate peace a lot. Okay? We cannot advocate for peace in the Middle East or peace in Ukraine and not advocate for peace in our own homes. That's not okay. If we don't have peace with our own spouse, how are we going to talk about peace around the world? Peace matters in our own home. And I, here's what I encourage you. It's very simple. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm telling it to myself. And, and I'm going to say it to men a little bit more than women's. I think we need to constantly be asking our spouse, how can I serve you? Like specifically, how can I serve you? And I say that to the men because I think often women are a little bit more attuned to this than men are. But women should be saying the same thing. Because it's only going to work if it's going both ways. If on a regular basis the man is saying, I want to serve you, help me understand what, what I need to do to serve you. And then the woman, the wife says to the man, I want to serve you. Help me understand how I can serve you. 
Like, you want, to, you want a great marriage, that's a great place to start. Find two people who are genuinely seeking to serve each other, imperfectly, but that's what they want. You've got a recipe for a really, really good marriage. And here's, here's what's even more important. You've got a recipe for a marriage that can do amazing things in the kingdom of God. Because remember, this is all under, uh, under the rubric of discipleship. Let's use our marriages, not just for ourselves, but to serve God and to God's kingdom and his purposes. Let's say one final thing. One of the most powerful, like I said to you, um, marriage gives us a vision. Marriage gives us a symbol of God's faithfulness and God's love to us. And here's a powerful way I think it does it. In marriage, we are vulnerable with our spouse. We're vulnerable physically. We're vulnerable emotionally. We're vulnerable spiritually. We're basically vulnerable with our spouse in every way. Uh, So my wife has seen me at probably my very best and at my very worst. She knows me. Okay? One of the most amazing things I think you can experience in marriage is to stand before someone naked, not just physically, but emotionally, stand before your spouse to be known for who you really are and to be loved. They know the good, they know the bad, they know the ugly, and that they choose to love you. Like, isn't that what we want? Isn't that deep down what we're craving? That someone will really know us for who we are and they will love us in spite of all that, in spite of all that, despite all that. To be known and to be loved. And that's what Jesus does for us. Do you realize that when we come to Jesus and we allow Jesus to see us, when we, in a sense, stand naked before Jesus, he sees it all. He sees the good, he sees the bad, he sees the ugly, he sees the stuff that we don't even want to talk about, the dark stuff. He sees it and he loves us. Do you get that? Do you get how powerful that is to stand before Jesus, to be known by Jesus, and to be loved? And here's what's even more powerful. We are unfaithful to Jesus so often, but Jesus is always faithful to us. Jesus is the perfect model of the spouse because he is always loving and he's always faithful. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would place before us again this vision that Jesus gives of marriage, of this self-sacrificial and beautiful and sacred union between man and woman, that we would recommit ourselves to this vision, to this permanency, and to serving our spouses. God, I want to thank you for all those who are single in our congregation, whether that's after divorce or after uh, widow and widowers or those who have chosen never to get married. I want to thank you for them. Thank you for the vision that they give us. Thank you for the ways that they serve our congregation, the ways that we who are married cannot. Lord, I want to just thank you for Jesus. Lord, we are so imperfect in our symbols of what your love for us looks like in our marriages. And Lord, we're just so thankful that Jesus gives us the perfect example of what it means to love and what it means to be faithful. May that inspire us to now be faithful back to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.